0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this week's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Piper tried to control her fidgeting as she waited in the airport security line. She had heard on the news that after 9-11, TSA agents received special training in how to identify a suspicious person. Piper wasn't a terrorist, but she was traveling under a false identity. She couldn't afford anyone looking too closely at the stolen driver's license she carried. Just calm down, she told herself. Piper exhaled slowly and smoothed down her blonde wig, It was almost her turn at the podium. She had to make it onto this flight. This trip was her best shot at getting her three kids back. And without her children, Piper wasn't whole. Every day, she ached for them. The TSA agent motioned at Piper with a blue-gloved hand. She stepped up to the podium and handed over her paper boarding pass and stolen ID. She could feel her heart beating in her eartrums as the agent looked back and forth from the driver's license to Piper's face. She smiled at them. Please, let this work. The agent scrutinized the ID. Please, 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 thought Piper. The agent remarked, you know, my daughter's name is Tina too. She hates it. Then he handed the license back to Piper and signed a mark of approval on her boarding pass. Piper giggled, giddy that her gambit worked. She replied, I know, Tina feels so ordinary sometimes. My younger sister Piper, she got the best name in the family. The TSA agent chuckled and motioned for the next passenger in line. Have a nice flight, Miss Roundtree. Piper kept smiling all the way to the gate. She was going to get her babies back. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator. If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Last week, we followed the relationship between Fred Jablin and Piper Roundtree, and why, after 20 years of marriage, they decided to divorce in 2001. The separation was hard on all parties both Fred and Piper vying for custody rights of their three kids. In the end, Fred was awarded full custody. Piper was destroyed. This week, we'll explore the drastic action Piper took to reclaim her children and the aftermath of a murder. We'll follow the investigation, eventual arrest, and trial. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com/merch for more information. Friends and neighbors often described 52-year-old Fred Jablin and 44-year-old Piper Roundtree as having opposite personality types. Fred had a more black-and-white way of looking at the world, orderly and logical. Piper, on the other hand, was a free spirit, incredibly artistic, with an outpouring of emotion. Piper saw herself as the consummate nurturer and the epitome of motherhood. According to the book, Die, My Love, by Catherine Casey, she said, being a mother is my personality, my thing, it's my purpose in life, it's simply what I am at my core. Therefore, when Fred was awarded full custody of their children in May of 2002, Piper felt like her world was ripped away from her. Before I continue with Piper's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Mia Smith-Bynum, a professor of family science at the University of Maryland, explored the effects of forced separation, such as losing custody on parents. She wrote, Forceful separation is particularly damaging when parents feel there's nothing in their power that can be done to get their child back. That helplessness can lead to a feeling that Smith-Bynum referred to as ambiguous loss. Parents who experienced this were unable to find closure She said, you know your kid is out there, but you don't know if you'll be able to parent and take care of your kid again. People become frozen in their grief. When Piper found herself in dire financial straits after the divorce, she was forced to move back to Texas, even further away from her children, exacerbating her feelings of loss and forced separation. Then, in the fall of 2004, Piper learned that her ex-husband, had started a serious relationship with a new woman. Suddenly, a stranger had more access to her children than she did, was able to care for them in ways she could not, just by her proximity. By the end of October, Piper reached her breaking point. On Thursday, October 28, 2004, Piper flew from Houston, Texas to Norfolk, Virginia, She rented a car at the airport and drove the 90 miles to Richmond, but she didn't notify Fred or the children of her trip and stayed at a nearby hotel instead of with one of her friends in the area. In fact, when she spoke with her 12-year-old son Paxton in the afternoon on Friday the 29th, she told him that she was in Galveston, Texas on her way home after a day of work. What follows is a version of events that is best supported by the collective evidence. Please note, this was not the only version of the morning of October 30th presented to investigators. That Saturday morning, Piper woke up in her hotel room at 4.30 a.m. She listened to the voicemail on her cell phone, went about her morning routine, and checked out with the front desk. She got into her rental car just before 6 a.m. The sun wouldn't be up for another hour at least. Under the cover of pre-dawn darkness... Piper set her plan in motion. It was only a 10 minute drive from the hotel to Hearthglow Lane, but Piper still found herself repeatedly checking the clock, watching the digital numbers tick the minutes away. She tried to channel positive energy. So far, every step had gone off without a hitch. She wanted that trend to continue. Piper's execution this morning would decide her children's fate She had to be perfect. Soon enough, she was making the familiar right turn down the quiet residential street. Piper drove past the house where her ex-husband and children slept, parking the rental car around the curve out of sight. She turned off the engine. The digital numbers read, 6.07 a.m. When Piper got out of the car, the slamming of the driver's door drew the attention of a few dogs in a nearby house, making them bark incessantly. She cursed them silently, then prayed for them to shut up. It was paramount that no one spotted her in the dark. She quickly dashed down the street, hiding behind a thick tree out of view. Piper forced herself to stay hidden, calming her breath until the dogs quieted down. It was now 6.15 a.m. Staying off the street, Piper picked her way through the neighbor's yards. She moved cautiously, without drawing the attention of anyone else. When she made it to 15.15 Hearthglow, Piper stayed hidden in the tree line. A light was on in the upstairs master bedroom. Fred was awake, right on schedule. The clock read 6.25 a.m. It was hard for Piper to return to this house now. With each visit, she noticed more pieces of the home she knew removed. The princess mural she painted in the girl's bedroom was wallpapered over. The framed family portraits replaced with photos that didn't feature Piper. Several members of the large brood of rescued animals were rehomed. Slowly but surely, all signs of Piper's influence were being erased. And she knew one person was to blame for these injustices and so much more. Fred. As if summoned, Fred Jablin stepped out of the back door of the house. It was just after 6.30 a.m. Piper's pulse raced as she watched him make his way down the driveway. She worked up her nerve to confront him, thinking about all of the things he'd taken from her. He stole her babies, her life, when Fred bent down to pick up the newspaper, Piper emerged from her hiding place. She cocked the 38 revolver in her hand. Piper took aim, feeling the gun's weight. She should have done this months ago. When Fred stood up, she called out to him. He didn't have time to respond before Piper fired. The neighborhood dogs immediately reacted to the noise, barking. Piper dashed across the grass and into the darkness, sprinting as fast as she could to the rental car. Her heart pounding, hands shaking from adrenaline, she fit the key into the ignition and brought the car to life. She gripped the steering wheel tight and sped off down the street. She'd been perfect. The dogs weren't the only ones who heard the gunfire that morning. According to Catherine Casey's book, Die My Love, Fred Japlin's neighbor, Bob McArdle, was laying in bed already awake on the morning of October 30th. He recognized the three successive bangs as gunshots and immediately called 911. However, when the police arrived and did a sweep of the surrounding area, they found nothing out of the ordinary. They told Bob that this wasn't uncommon, sometimes they never discovered the source of random gunfire. After the police left, Bob went about the business of starting his day. He and his wife, Doreen, got dressed and leashed up their own dog for their customary morning walk. When they reached the javelin house, Bob and Doreen stopped short at something in the driveway. The sun wasn't up yet when the police searched earlier. Now, in the early morning light, the source of the gunshots was revealed. Laying on the driveway next to his car, was Fred Jablin's lifeless body. Bob and Doreen immediately resummoned the police. <coughs> the police worked quickly to assess the scene. Paramedics attended to Fred Jablin's body and officially pronounced him dead. Neighbors informed the officers that the three Jablin Roundtree children were so far unaccounted for. Officer Robbie Reamer, unsure of what he would find inside the house, led a SWAT team through the back door. He discovered the children unharmed in their bedrooms. He told them that they needed to leave the house and escorted them to safety. Once they were in a more secure location, it would fall to the Special Victims Unit to inform 15-year-old Jocelyn, 12-year-old Paxton, and 8-year-old Callie that their father was dead. In the driveway where Fred's body was found, The forensics team recovered a stray bullet in the grass, but no shell casings. An initial search of the property ruled out robbery as a motive. The house was still in order and nothing appeared to be missing. The burglar alarm was deactivated and several valuables remained in plain sight. It appeared the shooter never entered the Jablin home. According to the Department of Justice, 14% 14% of all homicides in the United States were perpetrated by an intimate partner. In addition, separated and divorced men and women represented the highest rates of homicide. As investigator Kobe Kelly gathered more information from neighbors, he heard a great deal about Fred and Piper's contentious divorce proceedings. Mel Foster, who shared a fence with the Jablins, told Kelly about the false domestic abuse charges Piper filed, as well as a libelous psychological profile on Fred she emailed en masse after the custody decision. The sentiments of the neighbors were echoed by Fred's brother, who suggested Kelly consider Piper as a suspect. Dr. Mark Banschik, author of The Intelligent Divorce, wrote, Domestic violence stems from a loss of control, The perpetrator believes that she is a victim and that a wrong desperately needs to be righted. Unless she moves on to another victim or gets carried away in a relationship that has some health engendering energy, she will not let go. Some people simply nurse their wounds, waiting for the right moment. Investigator Kelly wasn't one to rush to conclusions, but he reached out to the Houston Police Department and asked them to locate Piper Roundtree. After all, if they could confirm she was 1300 miles away, it would rule her out as a suspect. And at the very least, someone needed to inform Piper of her ex-husband's death. But when the Houston officers arrived at Piper's house, she wasn't there. They left a message on her cell phone, asking her to get in touch with police as soon as possible. In the meantime, Kelly subpoenaed Piper's phone records to verify Paxton's account that Piper had called him from Galveston, Texas the day before, Friday the 29th. Kelly also reported speaking with their mother on the 29th, but wasn't sure where she had called from. However, phone records indicated that Piper's cell had pinged off towers in Virginia, both on Friday the 29th and Saturday the 30th. One of the towers pinged the morning of the murder at 4.30 a.m. was less than five miles away from the Jablin house on Hearthglow Lane. The investigators quickly shifted their energies. Their top priority was now locating Piper Roundtree. Coming up, police follow the evidence to track down Piper. Now back to the story. On Saturday, October 30th, 2004, 52-year-old Fred Jablin was found shot to death in his driveway in Richmond, Virginia. When police found evidence that Fred's ex-wife, 44-year-old Piper Roundtree, was five miles away from the house only hours before the murder, they prioritized efforts to locate her. In addition to placing Piper in Richmond, the records indicated that in the hours after the murder, The phone traveled southeast to Norfolk, where the airport was located. The last ping in Norfolk happened close to 12 p.m. An hour and a half later, the phone pinged in Baltimore, Maryland, over 200 miles away. To travel that distance in such a short amount of time, investigator Kobe Kelly surmised that whoever was carrying the phone had flown from Norfolk to Baltimore. He sent officers to the Norfolk airport with a picture of Piper to ask if anyone remembered seeing her there. He also contacted the TSA to check flight manifests. There wasn't anyone by the name Piper Roundtree or Piper Japlin, but there was a Tina Roundtree listed on a Southwest flight. She was ticketed to fly from Norfolk, Virginia, to Houston, Texas, with a layover in Baltimore, Maryland. The flight times matched the cell phone ping activity, By the time Kelly learned this, the plane was due to land in Houston in a little over an hour. He immediately directed Houston PD to send officers to Hobby Airport with photos of both Piper and Tina Roundtree. Kelly wanted to confirm exactly which sister stepped off that plane and instructed HPD to seize any luggage she carried. Houston officers Breck McDaniel and David Ferguson arrived at the gate with only minutes to spare, before the 80 Southwest passengers started deplaning. The officers stood on either side of the jetway, scrutinizing the faces that passed by, but none of them resembled Piper or Tina Roundtree. McDaniel and Ferguson asked the gate agent to check the flight records. They discovered whoever was flying under the name Tina Roundtree had checked a bag. They sprinted to baggage claim, hoping that they could catch up to her but by the time they reached the carousel, all the luggage had been collected and there weren't any passengers in the area. McDaniel and Ferguson reported their bad luck to Kelly. They missed her. He instructed the Houston officers to drive to Tina and Piper Roundtree's homes to see if they could catch up to either one of the women. Kelly also told them he would be on the first flight to Houston the following day. When Officer McDaniel reached Tina Roundtree's house at 6pm on October 30th, nearly 12 hours after Fred Javelin was shot, he saw a black jeep parked in the driveway. When he ran the license plate, he learned the car was registered to Piper Roundtree. Sure enough, a few minutes later, Piper exited the house and climbed into the vehicle. McDaniel tried to pursue her, but eventually lost the Jeep after another car cut him off. Around the time that McDaniel spotted her in Houston, Piper called her best friend in Richmond, Lonnie Elwell. Lonnie was despondent on the other end, barely controlling her tears as she told Piper what happened to Fred. According to Die My Love, Piper seemed indifferent to the news that her ex-husband was dead. Lonnie reiterated to her, sobbing, No, you don't understand. Fred was shot and killed in the driveway at the house. But according to Lonnie, Piper only wanted to talk about the kids, where they were, and when she would be able to pick them up. Stunned, Lonnie told Piper to talk to the police, and they hung up. Around 9 p.m. on October 30th, Piper and Officer Kelly finally connected on the phone. Again, Piper's only concern was the whereabouts of her children. She said to Kelly, can you just tell me where my kids are? I need to come get my kids. They're my kids. I have custody of the kids. Kelly tried to coax more information from Piper on the divorce and her feelings towards Fred, but she was singular in her focus. She wanted the children immediately. Kelly admitted that Fred's will made arrangements for his brother to have custody in the event of his death. That information made Piper furious. She eventually hung up on Kelly, and when he called back, her phone went straight to voicemail. He would be forced to continue their conversation the next day in Houston. While Houston PD officer Ferguson Waited for Richmond PD Officer Kelly to arrive at the airport on the morning of October 31st, Officer McDaniel sat in an unmarked police car in front of Piper Roundtree's house. Around 10 a.m., McDaniel watched Piper's black Jeep park in the garage. Once Kelly landed, he and Ferguson headed over from the airport. Together, the men knocked on the front door of Piper's house. But once again... No one answered. Kelly rang the doorbell. Still, nothing. They double-checked the garage. Through the window, they could see the Jeep parked inside. They tried the front door again, knocking and ringing the bell. Kelly called Piper's phone, and he heard it ringing inside the house. But no one answered. And still, no one came to the door. Eventually, they gave up. Kelly and McDaniel headed for Tina Roundtree's house, hoping they'd have better luck with her, leaving Ferguson behind. If and when Piper emerged, they wanted to be sure they had eyes on her. However, not long after the other officers departed, the black jeep suddenly zipped out of the driveway. Ferguson gave chase, notifying officers Kelly and McDaniel. He followed the black jeep to a shopping center parking lot and saw Piper emerge from the vehicle. He quickly parked in the spot next to her. McDaniel introduced himself and identified that he was a police officer. He asked Piper if they could go back to our house to talk, but Piper brushed him off. She said, no, if you want to talk, we can talk here, but first I need to run an errand. I have to get crickets to feed my frogs. With that, She walked away from McDaniel and into a PetSmart. He called Investigator Kelly with the update. The other officers raced to meet him at the strip mall. But before they could arrive, Piper re-emerged from the pet store. She bustled past McDaniel and climbed back into her Jeep. He tried to stop her, telling her that police from Virginia wanted to ask her some questions. But she slammed the door in his face and turned the key in the ignition. As she sped away, Piper watched the officer who accosted her in the rearview mirror. She swore under her breath when he hopped into his own car and followed after. Piper knew her rights, and she didn't plan on talking to any of the cops. They could ring her doorbell a million times. She didn't care. Hell, let them pitch a tin in her front yard. She knew they didn't have anything on her. This gomer pile was on a fishing expedition. She recognized him as one of the police officers at the airport the day before. Thank God she'd worn the wig. If they'd caught her traveling with a ticket in her sister's name, she'd have been screwed. But no one saw her get off the plane, and no one saw her in Virginia. She'd been too careful for that. When Piper checked her rear view again, she realized that another police car had joined the tail. They really meant business— she picked up her phone and called her sister. Piper's voice cracked as she said, Tina, I need your help. Tell me what to do. Knowing they'd catch up with her eventually, Piper led the police to a small office building in downtown Houston owned by an attorney, Martin McVeigh. When Piper initially moved back to Houston, she rented office space in McVeigh's practice but operated independently with her own clients. She had put a wooden sign in front of the building with both of their names on it, but hers was now painted out. Eventually, she decided to leave the law for a different job. But Piper and McVeigh were still friends, and Tina suggested that his office was a good neutral ground to speak with the police. Inside the building, Officer Kelly started off by reassuring Piper that Jocelyn, Paxton, and Callie were safe and being looked after. In fact he offered Piper the opportunity to speak with the children, knowing how fixated she was on their well-being. Once they were able to get the kids on the phone, Piper spent nearly half an hour talking to them. To Paxton, her 12-year-old son, she said, Paxton, your dad is dead. I don't want you to be next. Paxton, I'm afraid for you guys. Your Uncle Mike will inherit everything when you die. Paxton, there's probably millions— If I were you, I'd ask for police protection. She added later, your uncle is the only one who would profit from this. Once Piper hung up with her children, Kelly asked her to clarify what he'd overheard her telling the children. What did she think Michael Jablin had to gain from his brother's death? Piper knew that Fred named Michael as his beneficiary even if the majority of the estate and insurance money went to the children, Michael would be the one holding the purse strings. She said, Fred did not like Michael. I know that Michael certainly hated me. He hated my sister, and he still hates my family. If you look at money, if you look at position, if you look at opportunity, you know, the normal type of motives, Michael Jablin inherited $2 million or so from Fred's death. He was the one who stood to gain the most. Piper then broke down into tears, accusing Michael and Fred of keeping her from the children at all cost. Dr. Mark Banschik identifies several character traps that spouses fall into during a contentious divorce. He would label Piper as a mixture of the victim and the avenger. The victim, he described, is paradoxically ruthless in victimizing anyone who they believe hurt them. They have a powerful sense of justice and self-righteousness. The Avenger doesn't just want to win, she wants you to lose. She will not be satisfied until you are hurting. The Avenger sees revenge as an end in itself. When the Avenger is combined with the victim character trap, such people can lose touch with reality. She will stop at nothing to make sure that you cannot be happy. According to Catherine Casey's book, Piper also pointed the finger at the University of Richmond, where Fred was a tenured professor. She attested that Fred had control of the school's $3 billion endowment and all its employees. Someone from the school might have come after him. In actual fact, the endowment was closer to $1 billion and Fred had no connection to how it was spent whatsoever. Piper then claimed that Fred had a secret room in the garage. She accused him of growing, distributing, and using marijuana. She painted him as a major drug player, suggesting that one of his competitors may have murdered him. She told Kelly that Fred kept a gun in the house. Maybe someone used it to kill him. Kelly asked Piper where she was the morning of the murder. She dodged the question, hemming and hawing. But Kelly insisted. He reassured her that this was also they could rule her out as a suspect. She finally said, I was right here. Kelly asked her to clarify she was here, in Martin McVeigh's office? Piper scoffed. No, not literally in this room, but in the city, in Houston. Kelly brought up the phone call on Friday, the 29th, that Paxton reported. Piper confirmed that she talked to him on her cell phone while on her way home from work in Galveston. Kelly made a note of this. The subpoenaed phone records indicated that at the time of this call, Piper's phone pinged a tower in Richmond, not Galveston. She was lying. Kelly asked her to confirm her cell phone number. She told him that she didn't remember it. Then she added that she had more than one phone. He reiterated that he was gathering this information to try to rule her out as a suspect. They needed to know where she was on Friday and Saturday, the time surrounding the murder. Again, she was cagey, unwilling to answer. She told Kelly that she didn't want to involve her alibi in the investigation. He balked at that saying, "'You understand this is a homicide investigation? I don't care if you were buying cocaine from a minister, you know what I'm saying?' Piper eventually settled on Tina as her alibi. She stated that she was at Tina's house on Friday afternoon, but she wasn't home. Piper saw her a few times that afternoon when she stopped by during work. That night, Piper had gone out to a bar and met a man, but she didn't want to say who. She didn't want the police reaching out to him. Piper agreed to tell them her full alibi after she had a chance to warn the man of the situation first. After making this agreement, Investigator Kelly and the Houston PD officers paid a visit to Piper's sister, Tina Roundtree. She was aggressive and refused to answer any of their questions until they restored the three Jablin Roundtree children to their rightful custodian, their mother. She promised Kelly that once the kids were safely returned, she would happily confirm Piper's alibi. The officers left empty-handed. The night of October 31st, Piper reached out to her friend, Charles Took, inviting him over for a drink. According to Die My Love, Piper asked Charles for help coming up with a way to prove her whereabouts on Friday and Saturday. She had been at Tina's house, but no one other than her sister had seen her. Friday night, she'd gone to a bar and met a man, but he was married and she wasn't certain of his name. She didn't want to tell the police about it, worried that she'd be jezebeled by the conservative Virginia PD. Multiple times throughout the evening, she mused to him. How does a person prove where they were on a particular date? Charles threw out multiple suggestions. Did she have any receipts from the weekend? No, she hadn't kept any. What about credit card transactions? No, her card had been stolen and her debit card was declined. She'd spent cash the entire weekend. Then Charles suggested that the police look at her cell phone records. They would be able to tell where she was, depending on the tower she pinged on those days. No, she lost her cell phone. As she kept shooting down his ideas, Charles was surprised by Piper's priorities. She seemed much more focused on how this would affect regaining custody of her children than clearing her name in her ex-husband's murder case. He felt like she was putting the cart before the horse and echoed Investigator Kelly's words. Forget being slut-shamed, she was a suspect in a murder investigation. She needed to tell the police where she was and clear her name, then fight for custody. Piper thanked him for his advice, then continued pondering. On Monday, November 1st, Piper told Investigator Kelly that she was unable to meet him and talk about her alibi. Considering her behavior the previous day, he wasn't that surprised. Instead, he focused on the evidence. The Southwest Airlines ticket in Tina Roundtree's name was purchased with a Wells Fargo debit card belonging to a Jerry Walters. In addition to the airline ticket, the card had been used at an online wig store. Someone had paid over $250 for two wigs, one blonde and one red. They were shipped to Jerry at an address only a few miles away from Piper's house. After police were unable to identify one of the Roundtree sisters at the airport deplaning, Kelly suspected that Piper might have been traveling in a disguise. Perhaps she had been wearing a wig. When investigator Kelly called the wig boutique for more information, the sales clerk remembered the order because there was a delay in the shipment of the blonde wig. It had been purchased at a sale price, but the discounted stock had run out. The store shipped only the red wig, along with a note that explained a blonde wig would follow in a few weeks when it went back on sale. The clerk informed Kelly that a woman called and demanded they ship a blonde wig to her as soon as possible. Not only did she pay the price difference for the non-sale wig, she paid an additional $35 for expedited shipping to guarantee arrival by October 27th. When police checked the address it had been shipped to, they discovered it was a post office box company. One of the boxes was listed under two names, Jerry Walters and Piper Roundtree. The same day that the boutique clerk received the phone call about shipping the blonde wig, someone attempted to purchase a Southwest airline ticket using the Wells Fargo debit card. The transaction was declined, there wasn't enough money in the account. Three days later, after additional funds had been added, Jerry Walters' card was used at the Southwest ticket counter in Hobby Airport on a round-trip ticket from Houston to Norfolk with a layover in Baltimore. The ticket was issued to Tina Roundtree. It became clear to Investigator Kelly that in order to uncover the truth about Fred Jablin's murder, he had to locate Jerry Walters. Coming up, police connect the final dots in their investigation. Now back to the story. On November 1st, two days after 52-year-old Fred Jablin's murder, police uncovered a key piece of evidence. The same Wells Fargo debit card that was used to purchase an airline ticket in Tina Roundtree's name was also used to purchase two wigs from an online store. The post office box the wigs were sent to was in the name of both Piper Roundtree and Jerry Walters. Investigator Kelly was not yet able to determine how Jerry Walters connected to the Roundtree sisters, but he felt like he had enough evidence to show Piper's involvement in Fred Japlin's murder. The cell phone pings proved she was in Richmond the morning of the murder. Ordering the wigs in advance proved she planned the crime. Flying under her sister's identity she tried to cover her tracks. Unfortunately, District Attorney Wade Kaiser disagreed, worried how the individual pieces would stack up as a whole in the courtroom. Even though Piper's cell phone records showed the phone pinging towers in Richmond, it only proved that the phone was there, not Piper herself. The Wells Fargo debit card had the same problem. It was used in Richmond that weekend, but there was no way to definitively prove Piper was the person behind the charges. They didn't even have irrefutable proof that it was Piper on that Southwest flight and not her sister. Kaiser told Kelly he needed to find airtight evidence that Piper was in Richmond on October 30th, ideally a reliable eyewitness. Knowing that Piper flew in on Thursday and out on Saturday, Kelly felt certain that she must have checked into a hotel in the area. He sent Richmond PD officer Chuck Hanna to nearby hotels to look for any record of Piper's stay. But he was unable to verify she had checked in anywhere. None of the front desk clerks recognized her photo. However, Piper's phone had pinged a tower right next to a homestead suites at 4.30 a.m. the morning of the murder. Hanna had a gut feeling that Piper had stayed in that hotel under a false identity. On November 2nd, Officer Hannah found evidence to back up his intuition. In reviewing Piper's cell phone records for leads, Hannah recognized one of the numbers as he had called it frequently himself. It was a Papa John's. When he reached out to the pizzeria, Hannah asked the manager if anyone with the last name Roundtree had placed an order on Thursday, October 28th. The manager confirmed they had delivered to a Roundtree in room 171, at the Homestead Suites Hotel. Hannah felt like he'd finally found something concrete, but when he checked with the hotel manager, his lead fell apart. Room 171 was registered to Geraldyn Smith the night of October 28th, not Piper nor Tina Roundtree. They were back at square one. But by this point, Kelly had located Jerry Walters. He was a 51-year-old oil man from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He and Piper had dated for about a year from early 2003 to early 2004, then decided to just be friends. However, in the last few months, their romantic relationship had rekindled. Walters reported that the weekend of the murder, he had been in Baton Rouge attending a football game and sitting with his dog at the vet's office. When Kelly asked about the Wells Fargo debit card, Walters explained that he had opened an account for Piper when she filed for bankruptcy the previous year to help her through a tough time. He told Kelly that when he spoke with Piper on October 31st, she mentioned the debit card had been stolen a few weeks prior. Concerned about fraud, the next morning, Walters logged onto the account to report the theft. While doing that, he saw several purchases made in Virginia in the previous 48 hours. Piper told him, it must have been the thief. She had written the PIN number for the account on the back of the card. Walters had shrugged it off and closed the account. Kelly asked him why they shared a post office box. Walters insisted that the box belonged to Piper. She only added his name to the account so he would be able to pick up packages for her. He didn't receive any mail there. He didn't know about any wigs. The information exonerated any involvement on Walter's part and gave more credence to Kelly's assertions that Piper was responsible for Fred's death, but District Attorney Kaiser still wouldn't budge on his mandate for an eyewitness. On Wednesday, November 3, 2004, Kelly finally had a stroke of luck. He went back to the Southwest terminal at Hobby Airport with a photo of Piper Roundtree, and a copy of the ticket issued in Tina Roundtree's name. When he spoke with Southwest agent Kathy Molly, she remembered checking the woman in. She had remarked on her last name, thinking it was cute. She said she was a really cute woman, nicely dressed. I'm not a lesbian, but she was really attractive, and she was wearing a blonde wig. In addition, Molly informed investigator Kelly that this woman had checked a gun in her luggage. At that, Kelly showed her a photo of Piper, asking if she recognized it as the same woman. Molly immediately confirmed that the woman in the photo was the woman she had helped check in. The woman who had checked a gun. Molly had spent at least 10 minutes with her, helping her fill out the paperwork for the firearm and inspecting the gun to make sure it had a legally required cable. There was no doubt in her mind that the woman she helped was Piper. Alan Benestante, a TSA agent who helped Piper with the gun, also spoke with Investigator Kelly. He described the weapon as a revolver with a short barrel, a 32 or 38 caliber, with a wood or composite grip. This description matched the ballistics report based on the bullets found at the crime scene. But when Kelly showed Benestante a picture of Piper, he couldn't be 100% sure it was the same woman, remarking that her hair was different. That same day, Richmond PD officer Hannah returned to the homestead suites for a Hail Mary. He wanted to speak with Tamiko James, the manager on duty the night of October 28th. At first, she didn't remember the name Geraldine Smith, but when Hannah showed her a photo of Piper, she recognized the woman. She told him, she had a black hat and long blonde hair. It wasn't cold out, but she was wearing a hat, coat, scarf, and sunglasses. James checked her records and reported that Geraldine had checked in just before 9 p.m. on October 28th. The reservation for a non-smoking room was originally in the name Tina Roundtree, but when she checked in, the woman paid in cash, and asked to change her name on the register. James had agreed and updated the name to Geraldine Smith. James didn't think anything of it, plenty of people did that for many reasons. She remembered that the woman had seemed nervous and agitated. James thought she might have been trying to hide from someone, like an abusive spouse. In addition to the positive IDs at Hobby Airport, and now the hotel in Richmond, Staff at the car rental agency in Richmond also recognized Piper. Police then uncovered surveillance video from a convenience store that showed a woman with a striking resemblance to Piper. The Wells Fargo debit card had been used there 90 minutes after Fred Jablin was shot. In the video, the woman left in the same make and model car that Piper had rented from the agency. Investigator Kelly prepared to convince the district attorney they had enough to press charges, but as he was about to make the call to Richmond, Piper reached out. She was finally ready to tell Kelly where she was on Friday night and Saturday morning. Piper told him that on Friday the 29th, she spent the afternoon at Tina's house. Her sister would verify this. That night, She had gone to the bar down the street called Under the Volcano and met a man. Piper couldn't be sure of his name. It was either Steve or Jerry. When Kelly tried to press her on the confusion, Piper got defensive. It wasn't that she couldn't remember, but the man had used both names. Kelly asked if this man could verify she was at the bar. No, her alibi was another man named Kevin O'Keefe. She gave Kelly his information and encouraged him to reach out. Piper also explained that the next day, Saturday, she emailed a co-worker from her home computer. When Kelly told her that they would need to verify that, she ignored the question, pivoting to the next part of her alibi. Around 2.30 p.m. on Saturday the 30th, a neighbor had come over with her daughter selling Girl Scout cookies. She proudly told Kelly that she bought two boxes, Thin Mints, and Caramel Delights. They were her favorites. Kelly exhaled on the other end of the line. He needed to verify this information and then would get back to her. Piper, perhaps trying to take his temperature, asked if he thought that he'd be able to check her alibi before Monday. She was supposed to attend an emergency custody hearing in Virginia that day. Kelly's support at the hearing would mean the world to her. Piper didn't like Kelly's reply. He committed to testify to whatever is truthful, and then hung up. After speaking with Piper, Kelly set to work verifying her story. But when he spoke with Kevin O'Keefe, he contradicted her statement. O'Keefe's bar tab receipts showed that he wasn't even at the Volcano Bar on Friday night, only Saturday night. He had seen Piper there, but not on the night she described. Kelly then spoke with the neighbor she purchased Girl Scout cookies from. The neighbor also contradicted Piper's statement. She hadn't bought any cookies. She hadn't even opened the door to talk to them. A large woman in a baseball hat told them through the window that she was sick and asked them to go away. Kelly surmised that Tina, Piper's older and taller sister, had been at her house, trying to provide an alibi. The final shreds of Piper's tale evaporated with testimony from Tina's friend, Carol Freed. Police reached out to Carol after receiving a tip that she might be involved in the Javelin case. Terrified that she could somehow be charged in connection with a murder, Carol laid out damning evidence against Piper. According to Die My Love, Carol and Tina spoke on Thursday, October 28th. During their conversation, Tina told her that Piper had stolen her driver's license and a credit card. After joking that Piper wouldn't be able to buy much with the card, Tina fell into serious silence. She confided in Carol. I think she's going to do something stupid. Three days later, on Sunday, October 31st, Tina called Carol in tears. She needed her help. Something terrible had happened. According to Carol, Tina confided to her that Piper had flown to Virginia and killed her ex-husband, and Tina had helped Piper dispose of some evidence. Tina and Carol went to two different dumpsters in the city and recovered what she'd thrown away, a blonde wig and a purse. But Carol wasn't sure what Tina did with them after Sunday. The next day, Monday, Carol was once again at Tina's house when Piper showed up. When Carol offered her condolences for Fred, Piper replied, I'm not sorry he's dead. Just about how it happened. Carol reported that Piper then asked her if she could help her get rid of some things that she didn't want the police to find. Carol said that she was caught up in the drama and agreed to collect some bags and computers from Piper's house to get rid of. But by Tuesday, a cold feeling had settled in Carol's gut. She didn't want any part of this. She drove the bags and computers to the hotel she knew Piper was staying in. She loaded Piper's things onto a baggage cart and then paid a valet $5 to take the cart up to Piper's room. Carol drove away, washing her hands of the situation. Carol's girlfriend, worried about the implications of her involvement, had sent the tip to the police. She knew if Carol told her story, she'd be better off and less likely to face punishment. Kelly agreed with that assessment. So far, he saw nothing to charge her with, but he needed to determine the veracity of her statement as soon as possible. He drove to the hotel to check the security footage. At 7.11pm on Tuesday, the tape showed Carol pulling up in her car, unloading bags onto a luggage cart, then driving away. That night, Investigator Kelly spoke with District Attorney Wade Kaiser. Both men agreed it was time to bring Piper Roundtree in. On Monday, November 8th, Kaiser presented this case to a grand jury. The panel ruled that the collective evidence warranted murder charges brought against Piper Roundtree. At the same time, Piper was attending a custody hearing in Richmond, Virginia. She argued with the judge that her ex-husband had no right to assign custody rights to his brother instead of the children's mother but the judge did not agree. As long as Piper was a suspect in a criminal investigation, the children would remain in Michael Jablin's care. As Piper exited the courtroom, she didn't even have a chance to process her renewed sense of loss. She was met on the courthouse steps by Investigator Kelly, who presented her with a warrant for her arrest. Piper sat in defiant silence in the interrogation room, She couldn't believe the audacity of these cops, arresting her so publicly like that. Those rubberneckers on the 10 o'clock news had gotten their fill. How dare they treat her like this on the day she was fighting for her children, for her rights as a mother. Investigator Kelly tried to coax Piper into talking about the morning of October 30th. He told her he had a pretty good idea of the truth, but hoped that she would be willing to fill in the details. Piper rolled her eyes. She hoped he choked on a donut. But Kelly was determined. He pulled out a thick file folder and displayed the contents to Piper, showing her highlighted phone logs and transaction records for a debit card. This was her cell phone, her debit card. They were both used in Richmond, the weekend of Fred's murder. Piper shrugged casually. She had lost her phone and her debit card, several people had access to her purse. Maybe she lost the debit card, or maybe her sister Tina borrowed the card from her wallet. She said, Tina takes whatever she wants, all the time. Kelly persisted. He showed her a still photo taken from the convenience store surveillance video, indicating the blonde woman in the photo. Who does that look like to you, he asked her, hoping that in the face of the evidence, Piper would come clean. But Piper knew that she still had control of the situation. To convict her, the jury would have to believe without a shadow of a doubt that Piper was responsible and no one else. It was Tina's name on the airline ticket, Tina's name on the rental car. She pushed the still photo away, brushing Kelly off. I'm not sure who that is. It could be me. It could be my sister Tina. Kelly and Kaiser couldn't believe it. Piper Roundtree's defense strategy was to throw her older sister under the bus. Piper's trial was slated to begin in late February, 2005. In the meantime, Kelly continued to collect evidence that would bolster the case. He discovered that on October 26, a few days before the murder, Piper had gone to a gun range in Houston to practice shooting with the 38 caliber. He also uncovered a life insurance policy that named Piper the sole benefactor of $200,000 in the event of Fred's death. To confront Piper's assertion that it was Tina who had flown to Norfolk and not herself, Kelly checked the parking logs at Hobby Airport for the weekend of the murder. Piper's black Jeep was recorded in the logs from Thursday, October 28th to Saturday, October 30th. When the trial began on February 22, 2005, D.A. Wade Kaiser had a mountain of evidence to prove his case. Though Investigator Kelly had been frustrated by Kaiser's reticence to act during the investigation, dragging his feet on bringing charges against Piper, he saw the dividends in the courtroom. In only five days, Kaiser buried Piper Roundtree. Her defense tried to plant the seeds of doubt in the jury, suggesting again and again that it was Tina Roundtree, not Piper, who had gone to Virginia and shot Fred Jablin. But Kaiser had a rebuttal on every point. Piper alleged that Tina often used her cell phone. However, phone records and Piper's own testimony proved that she had called her son Paxton from her cell phone the day before the murder in Virginia. She claimed that Tina owned a 38 caliber gun, but there was no record of a gun registered in her name and witnesses from the gun range in Houston placed the 38 in Piper's hand. Kaiser stressed to the jury that it was Piper Roundtree and not her sister, Tina, who was on trial. The evidence overwhelmingly pointed to Piper. On February 27th, the jury deliberated for less than two hours. They found Piper guilty of first-degree murder and the unlawful use of a firearm. The judge at her sentencing hearing said, the evidence certainly shows that her intent was willful, deliberate, and premeditated. Piper showed absolutely no remorse for her crimes. She was sentenced to life in prison plus three years. After her sentencing, author of Die My Love, Catherine Casey, went to visit Piper. During their visit, Piper told Catherine that Fred was an evil man, one with many enemies. She detailed a new theory on who killed Fred. Maybe he was having an affair with a male coworker, and someone at the University of Richmond killed Fred to cover it up. Understandably, Casey dismissed Piper's allegations. As of this recording, Piper is incarcerated at the Fluvanna Correctional Center for Women in Troy, Virginia, She spends her time stirring up trouble. In 2017, she filed a lawsuit against the prison for denying her a yoga mat in her cell. A converted Buddhist, she accused them of violating her religious rights. The action was eventually dismissed. Tina Roundtree has made public statements of support for her sister multiple times since the trial. The fact that Piper tried to imply that Tina was responsible for Fred's murder doesn't seem to have impacted their relationship. She said in a 2014 interview, Piper and I are soul sisters. She is my best friend and she is a remarkable person. Tina continues to advocate for Piper's release, calling her conviction a terrifying miscarriage of justice. For more information on Fred Jablin and Piper Roundtree, amongst the many sources we used, we found Die My Love by Katherine Casey extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is a part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.